In June of 1994, a white Ford Bronco captivated the attention of a nation. Indeed, of the world. Even the NBA Finals were interrupted for aerial shots of the vehicle carrying O.J. Simpson. You all know by now that police were in pursuit of Simpson, that he was a suspect of murder, and the whole circus became a prelude to that most famous of trials. Indeed, some have called it the trial of the century. And literally, millions and millions of people, for I think it was 11 months, tuned in to follow this trial. For whatever reason, courtroom drama fascinates us. I don't know if it's because we have a desire for justice to be served, Or perhaps some of us like to be outraged when it's miscarried. But either way, the preponderance of, that's not the right word, the plethora of courtroom shows that persist on television right now prove that we really have a flair for the dramatic, to to know all the facts, to see the judge deciding guilty or innocent. And so if you're into some of those courtroom dramas, you see on television. This text is especially for you. It should should grip your attention because Paul is defending himself once more and he is on trial. He's on trial before the governor of Judea whose name is Felix and those who are bringing the charges against him are the Jews. It's the Jewish establishment, the high priest Ananias and the elders with him. And they are charging Paul, we will see, with two things primarily. Sedition, that is, he's an agitator, a fomenter of rebellion. And with being a leader of a sect. They're calling him something tantamount to a cult leader. He's dangerous. We'll get into all that in a second, but uh, we're going to go through this text in two parts. We'll see the, the prosecution and those charges. They'll lay them out. And then we'll see Paul's defense. And what happens in this particular section of Scripture is we find that Paul defends himself before Felix by denying the allegations of the prosecution and insisting that the way, that's Christianity, is the completion of Judaism because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so the, the main idea or the proposition that you can turn over in your mind this week as you meditate on this particular text is that the Bible rightly understood teaches us to believe in Jesus. And then our exhortation follows on the heels of that, which is we should worship God according to the way. We should worship God through Jesus. Let's pray and we'll, we'll get into the text this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to take part in something so much bigger than us. Lord, we've joined our voices to the hosts in heaven this morning as we sang your praise. We join together with the millions and millions of saints who through the ages and throughout the world this morning 
have submitted themselves to your word proclaimed. Lord, we, we join ourselves to the church who has celebrated the Lord's Supper generation after generation to the end of proclaiming the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we all, with eager expectation and hope, look forward to his return to make all things new. God, we are here to give you worship and praise. We pray that you would chase any dishonesty in us, away from us. Any mere ritualism out of us, God. If we, if we come here merely out of ritual, it is vanity. Lord, we have come to honor you in obedience to your word. We have come to make much of Christ. We've come to worship you and to encourage one another in the faith. We pray that you would accomplish these goals as we listen to your word proclaimed. Lord, help us to love you more deeply this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember how we got to this point in Acts, we've summarized the whole book as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And so throughout the vast majority of the book, we've just followed the Word of God, kind of from an aerial perspective, just taking hold throughout the world. People are believing the gospel and they're coming to Christ. And it's, it's just spreading, as Jesus said it would in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we're seeing the church being built. And now, towards the back half of the book, we've kind of telescoped in, we've focused in on the life and ministry of Paul. Paul is continuing the work of, of Peter. Paul is an apostle. And Paul is actually going to take the gospel to Rome even though he's in chains. We've followed his missionary journeys, and now we've followed him into this, his current state, which is imprisonment. You say, well, well, how did he get here? See, he was resolved to go to Jerusalem. He was taking that offering for the saints there that he had gathered up. And then, once he got there, he was informed about the rumor that people were saying he was an anti-Semitic person, that he was anti-law and anti-Jew. And so there was that plan they cooked up he said, Paul, you go and you pay for these four guys. You're going to pay for their haircuts in completion of the Nazaritic vow. And you're going to make yourself ritually poor. We're just going to go through some of these Jewish ceremonies to show everyone that you are not anti-Jew. That you're not against these Jewish ceremonies. That in fact, you are preaching Christ as the fulfillment of Judaism. And that you want Jew and Gentile alike to come to Christ. And so uh, Paul says to James and the elders, that sounds like a great idea. And then he, he goes to the temple, he's carrying it out, and it turns out to just backfire completely. Right? The Jews from Ephesus have come up. They're from Asia, most likely from Ephesus. And they say, there is Paul who teaches everyone everywhere against our religion and against our law and against this temple. They rile up the crowd. And they want to kill him, it says over and over again. They try to kill Paul. And the Romans are standing around. They realize that uh, this is going on. And so they go down into the madness and they save Paul's life. 
And they bring him up, and Paul's like, hey, can I have a second to speak? And they're like, wait a minute, you're not the Egyptian insurrectionist. He's like, no, I'm Paul, I'm a Jew. Uh, And so he gives that speech to the Jews. He says, I have been where you are. I know what it's like to persecute the way. You, You can be where I am. You can repent of your sins and find Jesus, just like I did on the Damascus Road. I was in rebellion against God, just like you. But now I see. I I was blind, but now I see. I understand that all of the law and the prophets, our Old Testament, was pointing us to this magnificent person. In him is life. He says, in fact, the promises of God are so big, I know this is going to blow, they include the Gentiles and not just us. And at the mention of Gentiles, uh, the crowd is roused up again and they say, like, wipe him off of the face of the earth. And so uh, Felix kind of ducks him into the barracks and they stretch him out to torture him for some information. And Paul says, hey, is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And they say, actually, it's, it's not. And so they unstretch him subsequently. And then the next day they take him before the Sanhedrin and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Paul says, it's because of the resurrection of the dead that I am before you today. And the Sadducees, who were Sadducee because they don't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees, these two groups make up the Sanhedrin. Pharisees believe in resurrection. They begin just fighting one another over this theological pressure point. Becomes violent, and so once more, Lysias, the Roman commander, has to usher Paul out. Later on, the Jews, determined to wipe Paul off the face of the earth, come up with this conspiracy. They're going to kill Paul. They're going to summon him to the Sanhedrin, and somebody's going to kill him on his way there. Paul's nephew just so happens, in the providence of God, to hear about this plot. He goes to Paul, tells Paul, eventually to Lysias, tells Lysias, and Lysias moves Paul out in the middle of the night so that he gets up to Caesarea, into the custody of Felix. He's staying in Herod's palace. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24. Paul's arrived there and we read, Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, So Tertullus is speaking to Felix. We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. And so Ananias and the Jews have come down and they have a hired gun on their side. This lawyer, Tertullus, and he's he's pretty good. He's following basic structure in the courtroom at that time by giving this kind of, I don't know, hat tip to Felix. But it's a little over the top. It's really, really flattering. And this is part of his kind of recipe to get a, a conviction. It's step one. Really flatter the judge. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost gross to read, right? We've enjoyed great peace because of you. And some historical background that's helpful here. Felix was a terrible dude, all right? He was a terrible, terrible leader. There was no peace under him. The Jews loathed him. 
And so, like what uh, Sproul said, you can tell Tertullus is lying because his lips are moving, okay? And so he, he is just buttering this guy up, flattering him. Felix, you're so great. And so, that, so that's step one, and then he moves on to step two to actually bring the charges in verse five. Give us a brief hearing, for we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among the Jews throughout the Roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges that we are bringing against him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. And so he doesn't hold anything back. He immediately says, this Paul, literally it's a pest, right? Eventually comes from the word pestilence, plague. A, he's a sickness among the people. He's infecting everyone. This, this is not a kind way to talk about someone, right? Uh, I had this experience a few, I guess a, a year or two ago, where I was becoming sick all the time. I was going to the doctor. I don't, I've never been sick all the time before, but what's happening to me? And the doctor looked at me and he said, do you have children? And I said, well, yes. He said, there's your answer. They make me sick. And then I said, you know, these children are a plague unto me. That's not the idea here. Paul's not joking. There's no, there's no joking going on. But the idea is the same. That Paul is like a sickness that causes the people everywhere he goes to be sick with rebellion. See, he, he's an agitator. He stirs up trouble. And there's a grain of truth in that, right? We've been following Paul's journeys through Acts, and there have been lots of riots and attempts to kill Paul. There's been stonings. But if you go back and you look through those accounts, Paul is not the one that's starting all the commotion. It's those who are offended by his message. But still, this, this charge is, this Paul is an agitator. In fact, his goal this is, implicit, is rebellion against Rome. That's what they're trying to say. And so, so Tertullus is making a political allegation against Paul. He's saying, you're Rome, you don't enter into these religious disputes, but here's why you should care about this man. Because he disturbs the peace. He's a plague. He's an insurrectionist. And the second charge I guess the supporting evidence. He makes a political charge and then he supports it with this evidence, calling Paul the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes. Saying this Paul is nothing more than a cult leader. He, he, the way that he stirs up rebellion is by pretending that he has a religious bent. He, he is a Nazarene. His theology is marginal. It's alien to true Judaism. Nothing to do with true Judaism. He, he is an outlier. And he is he's using his religion as kind of a, a Trojan horse to foment rebellion. This word Nazarene is derogatory. Uh, it is interesting throughout the Bible, um, there are derogatory ways to refer to Christians, one of them being Christian one of them being Nazarene. But as we'll see in a second, the way that Christians refer to themselves typically in the New Testament is followers of the way. This is really interesting how that 
played out. And there's something going on with the use of this term Nazarene here. If you remember, uh, Jesus was from Nazareth. And when Nathaniel was told that, hey, we found the Messiah and he comes from Nazareth in John 1.46, remember how he responds? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is associated with bad things and bad people. And here, when he's saying he is the leader of a sect of Nazarenes, well, they're not even really Jewish. They have this really weird theology. They're fomenting rebellion and they're Nazarenes. And I feel like that phrase, is, the word Nazarene is pregnant with. And do you know he's just like that Jesus who was from Nazareth, whom Rome condemned as a criminal. You see the connection, right? That Jesus was condemned. This Paul should be condemned. They were both a threat to Rome from this perspective. That's the argument that's being made. He's a leader of a sect of Nazarenes, and we have this lie that even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we apprehended him. Right, right. You mean you were, you were stopped from killing him? We'll just leave that part out. And then he says, if you just examine him, you're going to discover that all of this is true. And so here's the summary. Paul is a plague. This is supported by the fact that he leads a cult and that he is hostile to Jews and Jewish beliefs. Therefore, he needs to be convicted of sedition, which comes with a death penalty. So the, the formula is political allegation plus a, the theological evidence should equal a condemnation of Paul. That, that's the goal of the prosecution. That's their argument laid out. They want Paul dead. They've been trying to kill him since chapter 21. They're committed to it. They reject Paul just like they rejected Stephen, just like they rejected Jesus, just like they rejected the prophets before Jesus. This whole section, it reminds me of that parable of the vineyard in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. I'm going to read it to you so you can flip over there if you want in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. Jesus, we read this. Now Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they disgusted among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. When those listening heard this, they said, this must never happen. But Jesus looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on Jesus that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So you can see in this parable, the field is supposed to be the kingdom of God, God's people, and the the tenants are the leaders of the people, wicked leaders and false prophets. And so God's vineyard is not, it's not bearing fruit. And so every once in a while, he sends a servant, a prophet, to go to the people and tell his word to them, to call them to change and to repentance that they might bear fruit. And over and over again, the prophets are rejected. And so what Jesus is saying is as this people has rejected God's word and God's prophets on down through its history, generation after generation, so too is it going to reject me, the beloved son. He calls himself the cornerstone. He is the one who is judged unworthy, cast to the side. When in reality, he's the key piece. He's the one that holds the whole structure of Scripture and of Judaism together. And indeed, the one who rejects him will find him or herself rejected. We see here in the life of Paul, after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that this pattern continues those who are sent by God, those representatives of God who are speaking his word to the people continue to be rejected by the Jewish establishment. They are rejecting Paul as they rejected Jesus. And the reason they're doing so is, of course, because of their hardness of hearts. It's because they're dead in their sins. They need a miracle of God to bring them to life. And it's because they misunderstand God's revelation. You see, what's at the center of this trial, the the crux of the matter, is who understands the Bible rightly. The Jewish establishment is saying, we understand it rightly, and Paul was wrong. And Paul is saying, no, I understand it rightly, and they are wrong. Someone is right. Someone is wrong. And someone is against God. It matters. It matters. Paul is contending that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves him right. And so he focuses and funnels all the attention to that particular issue. The resurrection of Jesus. We see it in his defense. Look with me at at verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. Uh, I love this opening, this verse. Uh, The word, I think, is maybe better translated cheerfully. uh, The idea is that he's been encouraged and that he's, he's happy to make his defense. And I just think, this seems out of place. Right? The, the stakes are really, really high. 
Paul's life is on the line. He doesn't say, I I soberly offer my defense. I, with great trepidation, oh, most excellent Felix, offer my defense. He says, I I cheerfully offer my defense. And I just think it's because he is so satisfied in Christ. I think that 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 question, uh, that catechism question, what is our only hope in life and in death? that we are not our own but belong to God, is somehow imprinted upon his heart. That he realizes that Felix doesn't have any authority over him that God has not granted to Felix. Think of that scene when Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? Paraphrasing, of course. And Jesus says, you wouldn't have it unless it was the will of my Father. Nothing happens to me outside of his good and perfect will. I feel like Paul has a sense of that. Remember, the last two weeks we've been working on this theme of God's providence in the text. And Paul is able to be confident because he goes, God has put me here providentially. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And even though I'm in chains, I'm happy. But I, Paul, Paul could not be in chains, you realize. He, he, he could still be a Pharisee, He could still be well-respected in the community. He could have a comfortable life. But he tells us in Philippians 3 that he considers that comfortable life as rubbish. He considers it all as a loss because knowing Jesus is far, far greater. Paul would rather have chains, would rather stand in courts and have Jesus than to have every comfort in this world because Jesus is that much better. In fact, Jesus is so good that he can be cheerful even in his chains. So he cheerfully offers his defense. I had three thoughts on the heels of that. First is that Christians should be the happiest people in the world. We... we, should be marked by a unique joy. Like, do you really, like, when you just sit back and realize, no matter what is going on in your life, and you go, the God who created me sent his son to, to die for me when he should have rightly killed me for treason, could have rightly killed me for treason, sent his one and only son to die for my sins so that I could be reconciled to him in all eternity, sent Jesus to defeat death so that death wouldn't have a hold on me. I mean, you should be astounded. When we recognize that God is in complete control of this universe, that he's our father and that he loves us, that everything that, that we have is a, can be enjoyed as a gift from him, aimed at making us more mature, more satisfied in Jesus. It gives an incredible happiness. When our happiness is rooted in Jesus, it's unsnuffable. You can't snuff it out. It's almost like those, uh, on, they used to have the trick candles. Do they still have those on people's cakes on your birthday? Try to blow it out. You know, I got it out. It lights back up. No, got it out. Lights back up. You do it a hundred more times. It keeps lighting up. This is, this is the happiness and the joy of a Christian. You can't blow it out. You can't snuff it out. 
Because Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's safe and secure. And your life, Christian, is hidden with Christ in God. You're safe in Him. And so your happiness is unassailable. And if you find yourself saddened, there there are legitimate things to get sad about. But if you find yourself frequently saddened, I think it's worth asking, have I rooted my happiness somewhere else? You'll quickly find some of the idols in your life. Our joy should be in Jesus, should be unsnuffable. There should be a, a joy that doesn't run dry. Indeed, our lives and our gathering together should be colored by a just peculiar delight in who God is. We should be, as Christians, you should be surprisingly jolly people. Would anybody ever describe that? Just, they're just jolly. Love the Lord. That, that should be our disposition. I mean, over and over again, we're told in the New Testament, rejoice! I wonder if rejoicing marks us. Sometimes I, I'll look at things that get me down and I'll be, I have to do this like, like really? Like, here's Paul in chains and I'm upset because I ran out of coffee. Like, Paul didn't know suffering like this. 6 a.m. and I don't have my coffee. Lord, this is so good. Is your happiness rooted in Jesus? Secondly, Christians can be confident in any situation. God is for us. He's for our good. He's for his glory. He's ordered this universe for your good. Submit to his will and trust him. Don't have to fear the worst possible outcome. When we find ourselves filled with worries and anxieties, we find ourselves in sin. You can't make your life better by worrying. I always love Jesus. You can't make yourself any taller by worrying. Friends, worry is imagination misused. It's, it's thinking that God is somehow going to get your life wrong. He's not. He's never gotten anything wrong. And so you can trust him no matter what happens. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear the loss of your health. You don't have to fear aging. You don't have to fear the loss of your job. Because your good heavenly father knows what you need. And we'll provide it for you until it's time for you to die. He will sustain you until that day and on into eternity. Do not fear death. I always think of Jesus. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear God. Fear God and honor Him. He will take care of you. You can be confident in any situation. This is Paul is here. And then lastly, it's that Christians should look for opportunities to cheerfully and confidently share Jesus Christ. We should have the name of Jesus on our tongues often. Like if you won the lottery, 
you probably would tell people about it a whole lot. I don't know, maybe you're more shy about that, but I feel like I would be telling everybody, do you know what happened to me? This is awesome. I won the lottery. It's incredible. I think likewise, Christians should look for any opportunity we have to tell people about Jesus. He's, he's far more valuable. And Paul here uses what is a tough circumstance as an opportunity to declare Christ. He's not just concerned about defending himself. He's concerned about declaring the gospel. And so he sees these adverse circumstances, not as adverse circumstances, but as an opportunity given to him by God to tell Felix, the Roman governor, and all those who will listen about what Jesus Christ has done. That he's died on the cross and is risen from the dead. Paul is going to take everyone's attention to the resurrection. And so he does. Verse 11, you can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges that are now being made against me. But I admit this to you, I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accord with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. He's kind of poking the Sanhedrin in the ribs here a little bit. He's saying they believe in the resurrection too, and it's Pharisees and Sanhedrin, and so some of them are sitting on their hands right now, trying not to fight one another. He continues in 16, Therefore I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple, without a crowd, without an uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring the charges, if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this, that I shouted while standing among them, Today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul quite masterfully makes his defense. He says, look, I was only in Jerusalem for less than two weeks. That's not a whole lot of time to create a really big rebellion against Rome. That's not, not what I was about. Moreover, they found me in the temple ritually pure. I wasn't arguing with anybody. There wasn't a crowd around. And those who bring the charges against me, they're not even here. The original um, prosecution offended. They're not here to make their charge. There's no evidence. But this I admit to you, that I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way. And then you see that in 16, it says, therefore, I try to live with a clear conscience. Therefore, I try to live righteously. That's why I was in Jerusalem in the first place. And so he's saying, Felix, not only am I a good Jew, which we're going to get to in a second, I'm also a good Roman citizen. I've not done anything wrong. I believe there's a judgment coming. There's a resurrection and a judgment. Therefore, I try to live in a way that honors God, in a way that expresses my love for Him and my love for my neighbors. So let's, let's look at verse 
14. This is really the center of this section. He says, I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, believing everything that is in accord with the law and written in the prophets. Paul is confessing. So, you know, no, they're, they're right. I believe in the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I worship the God that they claim to worship, but I worship him in the right way according to the way. See, his explanation is, if you believe the law and the prophets, then you'll believe in Jesus because Jesus is the goal of Judaism. Judaism is the root that produces the fruit of Christianity. He's, he's saying they've only got part of the story here. God has revealed himself more fully in Christ. See, the Old Testament is Christian scripture. And if you divorce the Old Testament from Jesus, you can't understand it. Again, the argument here is about who understands the Bible rightly. Paul is saying that these Jews don't understand where their Judaism is supposed to lead them. Their Judaism is to lead them to Jesus. Do you love the Old Testament as Christian scriptures? Don't let anybody tell you different. You need to love the Word of God. This is where Paul makes his appeal. The law and the prophets testify to Jesus. It makes me think of the mountain of transfiguration on Luke's gospel. It's in chapter 9. I think it's in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 too. But you guys remember the story? Jesus and James and John and Peter, they go up on the mountain of transfiguration and you have the disembodied Moses and the disembodied Elijah sitting up there talking to Jesus. Like they drifted off and they wake up, disembodied Moses, disembodied Elijah, recognizable somehow, talking with Jesus. And they're talking with Jesus about his, the Greek word is exodus, right? His departure, this idea that um, he's going to be a deliverer like Moses, a deliverer like Elijah, going to lead the people, not out of Egypt, but out of death. They're talking to him about what's about to, to happen. You also recognize that Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So you have the law and the prophets testifying, witnessing to who Jesus is. As Jesus' face is changed and he starts glowing with that brilliant light, he becomes this dazzling white and then there's that cloud that comes down that's supposed to be reminiscent of the glory cloud that used to, Mount Sinai, it would cover Mount Sinai. It would lead the people by day. It would fill the temple. This glory cloud of God's presence envelops them and then the voice of the Father comes and says, this is my chosen one. Do you get the point of that particular story? The law and the prophets and God himself are testifying that this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who will save his people. And initially they thought geopolitical king. But on this side of the cross, we recognize not just geopolitical king. King of the cosmos, of the universe, of the new heavens and the new earth. Not just a physical deliverance, but a spiritual one that lasts on into eternity. Jesus is not just the Savior of Israel. He's the Savior of all who come to him in repentance and faith. And he saves not from Rome, 
but from a far greater enemy, death itself. Sin itself. He is the one that Scripture points to, that the law and the prophets testify to. Also have that scene on the road to Emmaus after Jesus is resurrected. You have Cleopas and the other disciple walking along and uh, Jesus joins them. They don't recognize him right away and they're telling him about his own crucifixion. They're like, oh, you haven't heard about what's happening in Jerusalem? This Jesus, he was great. Wish you could have met him. He was crucified. And Jesus says this, you idiots. That's my translation. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. See what he's saying? You don't believe in the resurrection because you don't believe what the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Love the picture here. These guys that just don't quite get it, they remind me of myself. Jesus shows up and puts his arm around them. He says, let me explain to you how all of the Bible is about me. I love that about Jesus. We also have in Hebrews, there's basically a whole book dedicated to telling us about how Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament. It opens this way in chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, God appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. He sustains all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that he became superior to the angels. Just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, the whole, if I were to summarize Hebrews in a, a phrase, it would be Jesus is better. And you just have this walk through. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus brings a new covenant that's better than the old covenant. And what we see in the opening is that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That, that Jesus is God's glory and that he sustains everything by his word. That Jesus sustains the universe like you and I sustain a musical note. He holds everything together. This Jesus made purification for sin. It's incredible, but, but the point is, is that you had God's word in the law and the prophets and Jesus is now the perfect revelation of that. He's God's word in the flesh. You also see in chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, we read, because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession 
for them. Jesus fulfills the old covenant and forges a new covenant in his blood. The new covenant that says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Lay your burdens and your sins and your idols down. Take up a cross and follow me and find life forevermore. Friends, Paul's point is if you believe the Bible, if you believe the laws and the prophets, then you will believe in Jesus who fully reveals God, fulfills the law and the prophets, and finally saves all those who repent of sin and submit to him. The resurrection is the locus of Christianity. If there is no resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. Paul brings us here to bring our attention to the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, to bring our attention to the fact that there will be a final judgment. And someone is going to be right about all of this. And someone is going to be wrong. It matters. It matters eternally. Friends, the Bible understood rightly leads us to believe in Jesus. To worship God according to the way, the truth, and the life. Implore you to put your faith in Jesus. He is mighty to save. He will give you that foretaste of eternal life right now. And he will make good on his promise to raise you up from the dead. Felix, hearing all of this testimony doesn't make a decision. Verse 22. Since Felix was, was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. That's where we'll pick up next week. But for now, for this week, I want you to think about what will you do with Jesus? Will you believe and worship according to the way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving sinners like us. And we pray that we would faithfully follow Jesus. That we would be a cheerful people, confident and bold. That we would tell our, our neighbors and our loved ones and our children and our our grandparents and our grandchildren about the cross, about the death that Jesus died there for our sins so that he might defeat death by his resurrection. Lord, help us to be an evangelistic people. Help us to see your glory as you grow us up in maturity in Christ. As you bear the fruit of the gospel in our midst and save the lost. Lord, we believe that you work miracles, that you haven't got out of the business. And so we pray for our acquaintances and our friends and our family that don't know you, that they would come and know this great joy. We beg you to make them alive and to fill us with your spirit 
that we might faithfully witness to them as Paul faithfully witnesses before Felix here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.